From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, April 30th. I'm Marco Werman. It's still unclear if Chinese dissident Chen Guangcheng is under U.S. protection in Beijing. What is clear is that his case represents a key test for the Chinese government. He's saying, I want to be treated fairly as a citizen of China according to the Constitution, and what you've been doing to me is outside of the law. And later, musician John Forte's take on the Moor of St. Petersburg. What do you give to the person who has everything? So someone had the bright idea of giving Peter the Great this little African boy. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontline's Money, Power, and Wall Street. Four years after the financial crisis exploded, are we safer? The investigation goes on in Washington, U.S. banks, and the looming troubles in Europe. Tomorrow at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The case of Chen Guangcheng appears to have turned into a major test of U.S.-China relations. The blind Chinese dissident lawyer escaped from house arrest a week ago. He's now believed to be under the protection of U.S. diplomats in Beijing. But the Obama administration hasn't confirmed that. The president himself declined to comment today when asked about the case by a reporter at the White House. But he did go on to say this. What I would like to emphasize is that every time we meet with China... Uh, The issue of human rights comes up. Uh, It is our belief that not only is that the right thing to do because it uh, comports with our principles and our belief uh, in freedom and human rights, but also because we actually think China will be stronger. The timing of this diplomatic headache isn't great. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is heading to Beijing this week for her key annual talks with Chinese leaders. Bob Fu is a Texas-based China rights activist who says he's a friend of Chen Guangcheng. Fu and his wife were accused of illegal religious activities in China and received asylum in the U.S. in 1997. Chen has said he doesn't want exile in the U.S., but Bob Fu says the options open to his fellow activist are limited. He may have to change his mind. Look, he has been cut off from any outside communication in the past seven years under enormous torture and brutal treatment with his family members. He was not aware what had happened to other fellow human rights lawyers in the past year since the Jasmine Revolution. And I think um, for him, he's a patriot. He, he loves the country. And uh, when he escaped from his house, um, that's what he said to me. He, he wants to stay in China. But uh, now the situation changed. And I think uh, a viable and realistic solution is for him and uh, his family to come to the U.S. Uh, for further medical treatment and live a peaceful life. Do you see that as uh, their only option now, as Chen's only option? 
Unfortunately, under the current situation, that might be the only option left. I mean, unless dramatic political change and uh, uh, in the minds of the Chinese top leadership. And uh, I don't think the Chinese leaders in the Communist Party wants to have a Chen in the headline news uh, every day. Do you have any sense why you think Chen has been persecuted by Chinese authorities? What he did was uh, he documented uh, over 100,000 cases of uh, victims of the forced abortion and forced sterilization in his county. He's a man of uh, really just uh, a courageous spirit for promoting the rule of law and uh, freedom and uh, really engaging uh, the legal aid for many vulnerable groups. If Washington doesn't negotiate an exit for Chen, what's going to be the, the reaction from Chinese human rights advocates? What would be your reaction? If Washington did not handle this case well uh, or properly, but, uh, for instance, if Chen, at the end of the day, like Wang Lijun case, was handed over to China or Chinese security, I think uh, it will be a major blow uh, to the spirit of uh, millions of Chinese uh, human rights defenders, and uh, it would certainly make the U.S. losing credibility in the eyes of the global uh, human rights community. The damage will be huge. And this is a, a you know pivotal moment for the U.S. human rights history and uh, especially the human rights diplomacy uh, because the Secretary Clinton has uh, talked about uh, Mr. Chen's case and uh, publicly appeal to the Chinese government to release Chen and his family as late as uh, last November. And uh, I think now it's time for her to uh, meet her words with action and to deliver it. And for the Chinese government, the Premier Wen Jiabao, to whom uh, Chen had appealed uh, in his video after he escaped, has repeatedly uh, calling for political reform, uh, calling for rule of law, calling for uh, social justice and equality. I think uh, it's time for the Chinese leaders to deliver uh, what they said with action. I think uh, Chen's case will be a litmus test uh, for the sincerity on both sides of the governments. Bob, just one last question. I'm curious to know what aspect or part of Chen's cause and goals do you and your organization, China Aid, most support? Uh, the painful thing was to see every day and uh, how Chen and his family member were treated brutally, you know, with his six-year-old daughter had to be escorted and searched every day by three guards. And uh, with his mother in her 80 years birthday was beaten up, was, uh, was not allowed to go to hospital. And uh, I mean, these kind of uh, details, uh, I mean, uh, make me wonder why a blind man uh, with courage uh, to advance China's rule of law had to be treated that way. That's painful. But at the same time, you know, now I can see that uh, there is some light that uh, he might be free and uh, finally get uh, some safety. So I'm joyful and uh, hopeful at this moment. Bob Fu, an American-based China rights activist and friend of Chen Guangcheng. He's president of the China Aid Association in Midland, Texas. Bob, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
The World's Beijing correspondent Mary Kay Magstad is in Boston this week. Mary Kay, you were just listening to Bob Fu. What do you make of what he has to say? Well, one of the more interesting things I, I thought he had to say was where he said that while Chen Guangcheng doesn't want to leave China, it may be one of the only options open to him at this point. And that's because the climate, the political climate in China is such that the government has been very harsh with pro-democracy activists and, and people who challenge its right to rule and or the way it rules. So with Chen Guangcheng, he's not challenging their right to rule, but he's saying, I want to be treated fairly as a citizen of China according to the Constitution, and what you've been doing to me is outside of the law. What do you think Chen actually wants, and why wouldn't he want the safety of exile in the United States? Because he wants to have a voice in his own country, and he wants to push for change within his own country. And exiles, pro-democracy dissidents, when they've gone outside of China, when they've gone to the United States, have tended to lose that voice in China. They don't have the same impact anymore. Do you think there's any interest for China to, to cut a deal out of this whole situation? It depends what the deal would be. Um, it's an interesting moment for China's leaders because we're still in the midst of another scandal. A, a senior leader named Bo Xilai, who had been party leader in Chongqing, has been taken down from his positions and could face prosecution. His wife is accused by the government of murder of a British citizen uh, who had been working with the family. And the way that the, the China's leaders talked about his case was he was building up a cult of personality. He was very corrupt. He was moving toward the direction of the bad old days of the Cultural Revolution. We want to move forward. Premier Wen Jiabao has talked about wanting political reform. Well, here's a moment when Premier Wen Jiabao and other Chinese leaders could prove that they're serious about political reform. There's a blind lawyer who had been basically speaking out for the rights of women who were being forcibly aborted of, of you know, their, their pregnancies or sterilized. We're talking Chen now. We're talking Chen Guangchang. And he served four years in prison for trumped-up charges, basically for disturbing public order, when in fact what had happened was his supporters had come out because he was being detained by the police. Um, he gets out. There are no more charges against him, but he's held under house arrest by a bunch of thugs, plainclothes thugs, who are being paid by the local government. He's beaten up. His wife is beaten up. His mother is beaten up. His six-year-old daughter is not allowed to go to school. And he sends this video. He, he, he brings out this video after escaping, asking Premier Wen Jiabao, why am I being treated like this? Did you not know I was being treated like mm. this? If you didn't know, what are you going to do about it? And if you did know, what is this you were saying about political reform? It, it leaves the central government in a very precarious position, it would seem. Well, a lot of Chinese middle-class Internet users are paying attention to this, which is not very easy at the moment because every time a comment is made on China's version of Twitter called Weibo, which about 300 million Chinese use, censors delete it. Um, and the government requires that they delete these, these mentions. So people are starting to use various code words to try to get around it. As soon as the censors figure out what the code words are, they delete those too. Nonetheless, a lot of people know what's going on, and they're looking with great interest about, you know, sort of how hypocritical are you being here? And, you know, we, we want to see some change. We want to see the government ruling according to the rule of law and not just according to its whim. In terms of tension uh, in U.S.-Chinese bilateral relations, there's no doubt that, that things are kind of fraught right now. But uh, in terms of significance, how would you kind of characterize this moment in U.S.-Chinese relations? Well, it's certainly by no means the worst moment. Mm -hmm. um, it's a moment that needs to be navigated carefully. 
Um, the Chinese side has signaled over the weekend that they didn't think that this was going to be a big issue in the upcoming strategic and economic dialogue this week. The U.S. side has kept very quiet about the case. There appears to be diplomacy going on behind the scenes, but the U.S. is being careful not to use this as a way to embarrass China or to draw out a sort of a, a, a need for the Chinese leaders to make a sort of nationalistic play to the population. Oh, you know, the U.S. is trying to criticize China and, and, and humiliate us. Look what they're doing. Um, so I think both sides are looking at the bigger relationship and saying, okay, you know, we need to manage this, but let's manage it quietly. And from the Chinese government's perspective, there's good reason why they want to do this quietly. Because if you look at the details of the case, this is someone who has been beaten up and harassed in his own home when there are no outstanding charges against him and when he's not saying he wants to leave the country. So what's their problem with him? They kind of have to explain that if they're going to go public with it. The world's Beijing correspondent Mary Kay Magstad speaking with us in our Boston studios. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can see more of my conversation with Mary Kay where we discuss how local officials in China can act as law unto themselves. Watch that video at theworld.org. Some actors really know how to make an entrance. I'm thinking about the two Cuban actors we reported on last week, the ones who vanished on their way from Havana to New York for the Tribeca Film Festival. Well, here's a quick update on Javier Núñez Florian and Ana Eline de la Rua. The pair turned up, surprise, surprise, in Miami over the weekend. They said they're planning to seek political asylum and are hoping to keep acting in the U.S., Nunez Florian and De La Rua also revealed that they began thinking about defecting when they were invited to the film festival. Well, their escape has generated a lot of interest about the movie they starred in. Una Noche is about three teenagers in Havana who try to reach American shores on a raft. So perhaps the film inspired the actors to go for it. By the way, Una Noche won no fewer than three prizes at the Tribeca Film Festival, Best Director, Best Cinematography, and Best Actor for Javier Núñez Florian and Dariel Arachada, the other male lead in the movie. So it's probably safe to say that the defecting Cuban actors won't lack for job offers now. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Imagine waking up one morning, going to your mailbox, and finding a pamphlet from the government saying it was putting missile launchers on the roof of your building. Some residents of London don't have to imagine that scenario. They got those notices. British officials say surface-to-air missiles are being installed on some buildings to protect this summer's Olympic Games in London from potential aerial attack. Brian Whelan is a London-based journalist and a resident of one of the buildings the government is turning into a missile site. Brian, when did you find out that your building was going to become a military facility? First thing, Saturday morning. I woke up to the news. My girlfriend had gone out to check the post. She came back quite upset. She showed me a leaflet with a picture of what looked like an attack helicopter on the front hovering over my building. What are the details of this kind of deployment of your building? Um, well, they're going to put high-velocity 
missiles on the roof of uh, the water tower that sticks out above um, my apartment building. It will be manned 24 hours a day by 10 soldiers. They will be guided by armed police in the hallways. How tall is your building? It's five stories, and then the tower sticks out again above that, about another two stories above that. Well, it doesn't sound that high. Why was your building chosen? Well, for, for East London, that is a tall building. Right, we're, okay. we're the last building before the Olympic uh, complex. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a gated complex. It's got security and it's got a swimming pool and that sort of thing. It's an old kind of uh, lovely red brick building. But if you, if you look at the back gates, the view is the whole Olympic site. Did you have any idea yeah. that, that this was happening? I had suspicions because I was leaving for work recently. I saw a group of men in army uniforms bringing crates into my basement. What do your neighbors in the building have to say about this? I mean, everybody must be a little jumpy. People are shocked. And there there was no consultation beforehand, so it really landed on us. We're not in a war situation in London. I'm not sure there's any ground to force this on people. You say you're not in a war situation in London, but the Ministry of Defense yeah. says that it will be conducting tests this week, including dummy missiles being fired. Are you going to be watching war games from your kitchen window? Um, by the sounds of it, yes. Um, I, I don't look forward to that at all. They plan to put the soldiers in as early as the day after tomorrow, so Wednesday. They're going to be there for two months. So pretty much until the Olympics and Paralympics are over, we're going to have a permanent armed police and soldiers. So kind of tests this week and then during the Olympics, 24-hour round-the-clock presence in your building. How's that going to change the, the daily routine at your apartment building? I'm not sure if I want to stay, if, you know, if people are going to be firing missiles from my roof or if I have to show, you know, um, ID to armed police just to get into my house. And I'm, I'm definitely not sure I could bring over any guests. I mean, <laughs> it'd be such an unusual situation to put people in. I guess the plus side is now you've got really good security. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not a plus side for you. We, <laughs> I mean, people say that, but um, I don't. I don't think they're going to fire the missile at like a, a burglar, or <laughs> right. um, you know. <laughs> Has this colored your opinion of the the Olympic Games coming to London at all, Brian? Um, absolutely. I was I was quite happy for it to happen before. Now I kind of wonder what what the cost is. You know. Um, if to have the Olympic Games, you have to militarize people's homes against their will. Brian Whelan is a journalist. His East London apartment building will have high-velocity missiles installed on its rooftop to provide security during London's Olympic Games. Brian, thanks for your time, and I never thought I'd be saying this to somebody in London, but stay safe. Thank you very much. Missiles on the roof, just one of the many Olympic hassles that Londoners will face this summer. Another is wildly overcrowded subway cars. The world's Laura Lynch has a new blog post on what Londoners can expect to endure during the Olympics at theworld.org. When he was 21, musician John Forte earned a Grammy nomination for his work with the hip-hop group The Fugees. Now he's 37, and he's the subject of a new documentary called The Russian Winter. The film chronicles a nine-week, five-city tour Forte and his band recently took across Russia. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. John Forte's been thinking about Russia for a while. A few years ago, he read a book about Hannibal, the so-called Moor of St. Petersburg. And it was about Peter the Great's godson who was essentially given to him as a gift. It was a joke. You know, um, everyone, you know, who do you, what, what do you give to the person who has everything? So someone had the bright idea of giving Peter the Great 
this little African boy. And, uh, and, and it was funny. But Hannibal was no joke. He grew up to be one of Peter the Great's most important military advisors. And his influence didn't end there. You know, fast forwarding a, a couple of generations, Hannibal is also the great grandfather to Pushkin, who had, you know, very dark features. And, and Pushkin essentially changed the face of Russian poetry and literature. Between Hannibal and Pushkin, Forte told me, he felt kinship, a kind of connection, at least as another person of color making his way in Russia. So the two men were on his mind, and it led to maybe my favorite moment in The Russian Winter. Pushkin. Pushkin's good. I don't know spontaneously how it got from that to me doing a, a salt and pepper uh, cover and or rendition of Push It. Don't you hear that poem, right in good. Come Pushkin. Ah, Pushkin's good. The Russian Winter is part tour diary, part biopic. It's screened at the Tribeca Film Festival that wrapped up yesterday. We see Forte and his band traveling across the country, playing a gig at an orphanage in St. Petersburg one moment, performing at the Miss Russia pageant the next. And they collaborate with local musicians. It kind of actually did feel like its own sort of nouveau uh, enlightenment era because you know as we were speaking to the young people there's a real sense of if you work hard you you can in fact be entitled uh, to upward mobility the film also shows forte struggling with working conditions that aren't exactly ideal at least not for a former grammy nominee it was a bumpy ride in the beginning can i use my own microphone yeah you can but schedules that meant nothing confusions over sound equipment not that he minded too much you know, I mean, what's life without a little bit of, of drama? And Forte's life has certainly been dramatic. Before the Fugees, he grew up in a rough Brooklyn neighborhood and then won a scholarship to a prestigious private school. But in 2001, after the Fugees, he was arrested at an airport in New Jersey in possession of two suitcases filled with cocaine. Forte was sentenced to 14 years in prison. The singer Carly Simon campaigned for his release, and in 2008, his sentence was commuted by outgoing President George W. Bush. So yes, the notion of a Russian winter, of going somewhere cold and distant, making the most of it and coming back, sure, it's a theme in the documentary. But, says Forte, the point is that he has made that journey, however uncomfortable it is for him to see his own story on screen. I can't go up to you and say, hey, redeem yourself. You have to take the initiative to be redeemed. And I think that that's exemplified in the film, and it's not easy to watch. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Days with grays in the skies Have me looking for light in your eyes. News headlines are next here on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Italy's job crisis. This pharmacist in Rome says there have to be more opportunities for young people. Not for me, but for the future, for the development of the country. I am of a middle class. If the middle class go down, the country is finished. 
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's been 25 years since Joseph Kony and his forces started terrorizing parts of Central Africa. Over the years, Kony's Lord's Resistance Army has been responsible for some of the worst violence in the region. But many Americans first heard of the man in March. That's when the video Kony 2012 was posted online to focus global attention on Kony and his practice of abducting children to use as foot soldiers. Joseph Kony, he has um, an army. And what he does is he takes children from their parents and he gives them a gun. The video, which has received 88 million views so far, said Kony can still be caught despite the challenges he presents. The U.S. military joined the hunt for Joseph Kony late last year. The BBC's Dan Damon has just visited a U.S. base in the Central African Republic that's involved in the hunt. He's now in Kampala, Uganda. And Dan, what is the U.S. military doing in the Central African Republic, specifically in Oba? What, what's there? What's there is just a 20-man unit of Navy SEAL special forces. And what they're doing is coordinating, they say, and they're providing logistical help medical facilities to the troops, the very many troops from Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, from South Sudan, and from the Central African Republic who are out there in the bush. What the Americans are not doing, and they make this clear, is they are not on patrol in the jungle. And indeed, perhaps jokingly, we said, if you saw Joseph Kony in your sights, would you shoot him? And they said, no, we'd get one of our partner nations to do it all. Well, here's General Carter Ham. He's uh, overall commander of the U.S. African Command, and he's describing the challenge they face. It's a very large area, very heavily forested, looking for a very small number of people in a wide, wide area. So it's a very difficult mission. But I'm very confident that the, the four African nations that are involved, with a little bit of support from us and from others, ultimately will be successful. Dan Damon, uh, in Kampala, General Carter Ham has referred to what he calls man-on-the-moon syndrome. Are, are there high expectations because the U.S. is now involved? Indeed. What he means is that if the Americans can put a man on the moon, then why can't they catch Joseph Kony? They've got all this sophisticated surveillance equipment. The point made to me by one of the Navy SEALs there, Captain Gregg, and ironic, isn't it, that this is as far as you can get from the sea anywhere in Africa. Here I was talking to a Navy captain. He told me that they're not there to provide that sort of facility. They are there to coordinate, to professionalize the armies, uh, to give them the skills, but they're not going to put in a lot of American effort. And of course, uh, the backstory to that is this is still a limited deployment because it would be difficult for America to deploy in large scale politically at the moment. It wouldn't be something the White House would want to be getting into. Mm. A small U.S. Navy SEAL team, as you say, and they're organizing the African troops, it sounds like. How well do the U.S. forces know this area and the situation? Are they indeed the best uh, forces to be organizing this? They recognize the Americans there that the superior skills in the bush are with the local armies. But what they don't have is the intelligence gathering equipment. It's more likely, apart from any surveillance that might be done by the armies out there, that it'll be a hunter 
out in the forest who notices an LRA camp or perhaps somebody will escape from a raid. And the raids go on, Marco, by the way. The most recent one was just about seven days ago near Oboe. So the LRA or some parts of it are still very active around this region of Central Africa. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, there's still fear about Joseph Kony. How big is the threat he still poses? It's the fear that poses the threat. Somebody told me a moment of violence can mean years, perhaps a lifetime of fear for these communities because these are farmers. The the land is plentiful, and that's how people live. Out in Oboe, when I was there, I was struck on a couple of occasions by mangoes, full ripe mangoes falling off trees. You know, it's a mm. it's a place where things grow, but people don't get out of town now because they're afraid of the LRA. And even in those areas of northern Uganda, where the LRA was driven out many years ago, people still fear him. They think he can come back. They think he's got these magical supernatural powers. Plus, of course, they believe, and the Ugandan army confirms they have evidence, that Sudan, Khartoum, is supporting the LRA, supporting Kony, and providing him with new weapons. And Dan, give us a reality check here. How much did the Kony 2012 video that was released by uh, Invisible Children, this uh, NGO, actually fuel the new muscular hunt for Joseph Kony? The American military, the diplomats that I've been meeting over the past few days would deny that. They say they're glad of the video because it's focused attention and maybe some other countries will make contributions too. But they point out that they've been funding the Ugandan army to the tune of a million and a half dollars every month since 2008 to help with the hunt for Joseph Kony. So they're not new into this game. They haven't been pushed into it by a, a Twitter or Facebook campaign. But they do recognize that there is a great deal of interest now because this is, as well as being a political story, a military story, it's very much a human story. And I met some of those people who had suffered under Joseph Kony. I met one of the women, his wives, in inverted commas, who came out of the bush not long ago with a three-year-old baby, Joseph Kony's child. Dan, you said the Navy SEAL line is that if they see Kony, they won't shoot him. They'll order the Ugandan army to shoot him. But would anyone shoot him to kill? I mean, he's wanted by the ICC. I think it's most unlikely that he'll be captured alive. He himself said he would die like Hitler. He told that to a woman who tried to negotiate with him. I've met her. She's Betty Bugombe, a member of parliament here. She tried on several occasions to get Joseph Kony to give himself up. He said he had three options, prison, death or exile. He wouldn't take prison. The BBC's Dan Damon speaking with us from Kampala, Uganda. Dan's been on the front lines on the hunt for Joseph Kony. Thank you very much, Dan. A pleasure, Marco. Financial markets in Europe had a down day today. They were reacting to the latest bad news about the recession in Spain. Economists there are predicting it will be a while before growth returns. That's partly because of all the budget cuts the Spanish government has had to make to solve its debt problem. The same thing's happening in other European countries, like Italy. The government there is desperate to find ways to cut while still encouraging job growth. But to do that, Italian officials will have to change an entrenched system of professional guilds. Megan Williams reports from Rome. Just steps away from the ancient form in Rome, 38-year-old pharmacist Francesca Peluso helped some Danish tourists choose toe separators for their weary feet. For the past four years, Peluso has been selling everything from aspirin to cough drops to skin creams. But despite the fact she's a registered pharmacist who graduated with top marks, she can't sell prescription drugs. That's because under rules set up almost a century ago by the Italian Pharmacists Professional Association, only pharmacists who actually own pharmacies can sell prescription drugs. 
The number of pharmacy licenses is limited, and each can cost millions of dollars. Paluzzo says she's had it with a system that protects the privileges of an insider minority. I want the liberalization of the profession, not for me, but for the future, for the development of the country. I am of a middle class. If the middle class go down, the country is finished. The Pharmacist Association is just one of dozens of medieval-like guilds in Italy that control who can and who can't practice a profession. Those affected include journalists, notaries, psychologists, and even taxi drivers. Rome, Milan, and Florence all have acute taxi shortages. But the taxi guilds have fought any attempt to allow new taxi licenses. They prefer to manipulate demand by keeping their numbers down, thereby guaranteeing themselves a constant supply of passengers and a decent income. The needs of the public or of tourists don't enter into the calculation. We need the right kind of regulation, not liberalization. Claudio Giudici is the head of the Florence Taxi Guild. History, he says, teaches that opening markets just creates more poor people. He prefers the careful regulation the guild system offers. Liberalization is a fraud. Liberalization uh, only benefits big capital, big uh, financial interest that uh, can enter in the liberalized sectors and control them. In other words, Giudici thinks liberalization favors big corporations at the expense of individual taxi drivers. That's an argument heard in many sectors here, that the guild system has protected what is the backbone of the Italian economy, small business owners and entrepreneurs. But with Italy now sinking into a deep recession after almost 15 years of a no-growth economy and youth unemployment at 31%, the country's new prime minister, Mario Monti, says it's time to open up the system. Monti wants to make liberalizing the economy a key component of his growth plan. According to Italy's antitrust committee, Italian guilds cost the country upwards of $2 billion a year by blocking competition and keeping young people without the means or connections from entering professions. But pushing any changes through parliament won't be easy. Half of Italy's lawmakers are themselves members of various professional guilds. For The World, I'm Megan Williams in Rome. One of the most dangerous professions in Mexico is being a journalist, especially if your beat includes the drug war. There have been numerous cases of local reporters in Mexico allegedly being murdered by the drug cartels. The latest case, though, is of a reporter working for a national news magazine called Proceso. Regina Martinez was found dead in her apartment yesterday in Veracruz State. Mexico's National Human Rights Commission is now investigating the murder. Reporter Frank Contreras works for Al Jazeera and is based in Mexico City. Frank, tell us first of all who Regina Martinez was and what kind of impact her reporting actually had on the drug war. Well, Regina was the correspondent for Mexico's most important investigative magazines in the world in the Spanish language. She was covering the Gulf Coast state of Veracruz for many years. And recently, she was, of course, covering the war on drugs and naming names of politicians that might have been involved with organized crime groups, which is a very dangerous thing to do in this country. What laws in Mexico actually protect journalists in these types of situations? I mean, do journalists even feel like they have the state at least looking out for them? Well, actually, it turns out that on this very day, today on Monday, 
the Mexican Congress is in the last day of its session and looking at the possibility of finally passing a law that obligates government officials to investigate the disappearance of journalists or the murders of reporters or editors in this country. Um, in the last 14 months alone, Marco, five journalists in the state of Veracruz have been murdered. And that's a high number anywhere in the world. But also there are a great number of journalists who simply turn up missing, Marco. They investigate a little too much when it comes to the drug trafficking issue, and suddenly they turn up missing. You know, there's long been suspicion, Frank, in Mexico of collusion between police and the drug cartels. I mean, if that were true, it would seem that no law could really protect journalists in in Mexico. Well, that's one of the major problems that reporters face when we try to investigate. And then you learn that perhaps there were police officials involved. When you start to to dig into that, that's where you really run into major risks here. And so this is the kind of thing that does take place. It's, It's the kind of reporting that Mexico really needs to be able to finally overcome the problem of corruption. But the very act of covering the stories is now putting so many reporters' lives at risk that I know a great number of reporters who've decided simply not to cover the story. Self-censorship in many parts of the country is the rule of the day. And now it's fallen on citizens themselves to do some of this reporting on, on social media. And even they're facing threats in the state of Veracruz. A law was passed recently saying that if a citizen sends a tweet or a Facebook message that creates havoc or causes a problem, then that person could be sent to jail. Of course, that's a reference to a case that took place last year that Regina Martinez was covering, a story about how two citizens sent out Twitter messages and they were arrested. Tell me about your your own experience, Frank, working for Al Jazeera, a major international news organization. How supportive is Al Jazeera of your work in Mexico and your own security? Al Jazeera is, is highly supportive. They basically obligate me and my crew members to have a very elaborate plan. For example, this week we will be going to investigate the story of this murdered journalist. And so we're going to be putting ourselves in in some fairly risky situations. And you have to detail, what is your escape plan? What will you do if you get pulled over by gunmen? Right. Um, And, you know, what is your plan to get out of those kinds of situations if you do get kidnapped? But you always wonder, is it ever enough? I mean, if they grab you, who can really help you? At the end, in the end, if you get kidnapped or if something happens, you're basically on your own to sort of get through it. Do you think this was at all the issue with Martinez, with uh, Regina Martinez's murder? I mean, do you think that she was getting the support she needed from Proceso? She was getting support. I know that high-ranking members of the Proceso editorial team were actually in Veracruz the day she was murdered, and they had a meeting with the governor there talking about the kinds of crimes that have been taking place and the kinds of attacks that journalists have been facing. In fact, I met her once very briefly, and she told me that you know she knows that she's in harm's way in a place like Veracruz where we saw an increase in drug violence last year and this year as well. She knew that by doing this kind of reporting, she could be putting herself in harm's way. And she just said, you know, I hope God takes care of me. Reporter Frank Contreras in Mexico City. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. A map of South America comes in handy for today's GeoQuiz. At first glance, one thing that stands out is the region's long Pacific coastline. Chile, for example, has a spectacular view of the Pacific Ocean. That country's coastline stretches out nearly 4,000 miles, following a line that's roughly parallel to the southern Andes. Peru, just to the north, has a long coastline, too. Its beachfront extends from the Tacna region in the south 
all the way up to Lambayeque in the north. So how long is that? Well, here's a hint. Peru's long coastline covers about the same distance as the U.S. coastline between Bangor, Maine, and Miami. We're back with that mileage in just over a minute. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We asked you about Peru's long Pacific coastline for our geo-quiz. Well, the answer is that it stretches out almost exactly 1,500 miles. There have been some troubling sights up along the northern coast of Peru. Hundreds of dead dolphins washed up on beaches there in recent months, and now in the past few days, dead pelicans in the very same area. Stefan Austermurla is with the Peruvian conservation group Mundo Azul, or Blue World. Where exactly is it happening? Yeah, we have an uh, epidemic outbreak of morbidity virus with the dolphins, and this is happening in two of the three northern uh, departments, Lambayeque and Piura. Both of these departments are touched by or, or uh, in the reach of the subtropical currents. And how many dolphins have, have died so far? Well, the estimates that we have is about 3,500 dolphins since January. And now pelicans? It appears that now we have a, a mass die of, of pelicans. The numbers are varying between 500 and 1,300, depending what source you use. However, the problem is that uh, there is no information, scientific information known to my knowledge, that the morbidity virus from cetaceans would switch to birds. So we don't know if that is the same virus or we have two viruses going on by accident at the same time. However, having said that, if we have the experience of the chicken flu and mad cow disease, we know that viruses have the capacity to jump uh, over the biological barriers from mammals to birds or from birds to humans, which are mammals in the end. So there is concern that we have a virus that is mutating and has now affected the birds. That could be then cause that the pelicans would affect other dolphin species further south, which are in the cold current. You seem fairly certain that it is a virus that is the cause of these deaths of, of dolphins. How do you know for sure? Well, the Peruvian government has taken samples from some of the dolphins, and there was positive identified as morbidity virus. We have epidemic outbreaks of morbidity virus or preserved over the last 30 years in more than 25 species of whales and dolphins all around the world. So it's nothing uncommon to happen. And the analysis uh, results were clear. What has been the reaction from the Peruvian government so far, and what more could they be doing, in your opinion? When you have an epidemic outbreak like this, what you want to see is that people with masks and gloves collect the dolphins, burn them, uh, eliminate them from the environment. Please remember that in Peru, some people have the custom to eat dolphin meat. We have an illegal killing of dolphins going on for the last 10 years of at least 1,500 to 3,000 dolphins per year. So to eat dolphin meat is quite common. Now, if we imagine that some of these people eventually might find a relatively fresh dolphin floating in the water and just take advantage of that and eat some of this meat, or even if you just imagine that you have more than 3,000 dolphins littering the beaches and getting rotten, and you have people running all over and touching them, then you have a health risk. It is very important that a government protects its citizens from this kind of health risk. 
So on one end of that 1,500-mile-long Peruvian coastline, uh, dolphins are thriving. On the other end, they're threatened. Well, we'll have to see diseases occur naturally. So actually, under ideal conditions, a population of species should be able to cope with that. But if we take into account the world we live in nowadays, where we have contamination all over, then we have a different setting. We know from studies that the dolphins that most likely will die from this kind of viruses are the dolphins that are most contaminated, that have ingested with their food the highest amount of contaminants like pesticides, BCV, all this kind of stuff. So if we have uh, animals that are, because of the environmental conditions, their immune system is weak, then diseases like this will hit much stronger than under ideal conditions. And if we then take into account that we have losses in fisheries, that we have people uh, hunting dolphins and eating them in Peru, all these threats together are too much for a population. So we do run the risk of losing species by the combination of all these problems. Stefan Ostermüller, a marine biologist with the Peruvian conservation group Mundo Azul, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Finally today, we meet Kenyan singer Nina Ogad. A few years ago, she wrote this song while living and studying in Paris. Ogat has since moved back to Kenya, and it turned out that song previewed a new focus in her life, as reporter Mary Stuckey found out in Nairobi. The song is called Shokora, the Swahili word for street kids or scavengers, and has become something of an anthem for Nina Ogat. Ogat's song describes a child living on the street, alone, unloved, and uncared for. Nina Ogat recorded this song on her first album, never thinking that one day she'd actually be working with young people who live on the street. On this day, some young performers are rehearsing a dance musical. All are or have been homeless. Every day they show up at the Go Down Arts Center, a hub for nonprofit arts organizations in an industrial part of Nairobi. They spend the day learning and practicing dance routines and acrobatics. Big movements for running and rolling. Ogat is here too, composing the music that tells their stories. They're not just um, people scrounging, you know, uh, every day looking for a living. Their talent is, is amazing. Kevin Ogutu, now 22, was only 12 when he ended up on the street, digging in trash cans for food and sniffing glue. One day, Ogutu heard about the Go Down Art Center. He showed up, and now he's performing in the musical. It changed me a lot because at first, if you want to be a good artist, you need to have that discipline and you're responsible for your life because art is all about spreading love and sharing and responsibility. That's the interesting thing. They're artists. People think street kids are just, you know, hardcore people from the ghetto. But these are people just, they, they have talents just like everybody else. And all they need is, is a platform to express their talents. Last year, Ogot won Best Original Score from the Kenyan Film Board for a movie about a child who loses his grandfather. And that song, this, the title of the song that I wrote is called Champion. I am a champion. 
is about a child who's trying to find himself. And I chose the name champion or the title champion because it's not easy to find who you are. Wings, yes, I wanna fly. Ogot used to be a radio and TV host in Nairobi. Now she says she's happy to focus entirely on her music. For the world, I'm Mary Stuckey, Nairobi, Kenya. I am a champion, yes, trying to find my own. Sarah Uko contributed to that report. You can see a video on Nina Ogot's musical about street children in Nairobi at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.